a very warm welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral. My name is Paula Gooder, and I'm the Chancellor here at St. Paul's, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that it takes place within the cathedral. In a moment, I will introduce our speaker, though I don't think he needs much introduction. But let me tell you first how the evening will unfold. The Archbishop will speak for a certain number of minutes. We'll find out how many that is. And then at the end of his talk, there will be an opportunity for questions. Now, I hope you will appreciate, in a cathedral as full as this this evening, um, we can't use a roving microphone. So the way in which we do questions here is that um, we, you are invited either to write down your question. If you have the program in front of you, you will see that there's a space on there to write your question. When you have written your question, if you raise it in the air, a very efficient team member will come and relieve you of it and will take it over to um, the desk where they will type the question in for me. If you are more technologically advanced, then you might like to tweet your question, if you are a tweeter, that is. If you would like to tweet your question, please use the hashtag JesusMovement. So hashtag JesusMovement, all one word. That will arrive miraculously at our tweet deck, and then equally they will be sent to me. So what will happen is I will get the questions on the computer screen and I will then ask Archbishop Michael as many as we've got time for in the time available. Um, we will end promptly at eight o'clock, in case you are timing your trains for your way home. But when we have finished, there is a bookstall down to my right, your left, down there, upon which um, there are many of Archbishop Michael's books that you are very welcome to buy. Um, if you are not yet on our mailing list and would like to be on our mailing list, and we would very much like you to want to be on our mailing list, please fill in the slip that you have in front of you and then that way you can be kept up to date with future events. One final note about the evening before I introduce Archbishop Michael. Unfortunately, the Archbishop needs to rush off at the end of this evening. He has an early flight in the morning. So I hope you will understand if we hustle him away at the end. Um, it is so that he can get his early morning flight. Now, allow me to introduce Archbishop Michael Curry the 27th presiding bishop of the United States Episcopalian Church. Um, I have been following him for many, many years with great admiration and inspiration. But for many people, their first encounter with him was at a wedding that took place last year. I remember the event distinctly because I was out for most of the afternoon. And as I walked into my front door, my then 14-year-old daughter met me at the front door with, in a frenzy of excitement. Those of you who know teenagers will know that's unusual in itself. And she said to me, Mum, Mum, you've got to listen to this sermon. It is amazing. 
And I thought to myself, who are you and what have you done to my daughter? She was, of course, entirely correct. It was an amazing sermon, as an astute 14-year-old could tell you and as any one of us could tell you. Archbishop Michael was ordained in another St. Paul's Cathedral, one in Buffalo, New York, in 1978. He's the first ever African-American to serve as presiding bishop in the Episcopal Church, having been installed on All Saints Day 2015 during a Eucharist at Washington National Cathedral in a service which included readings in Spanish and Native American languages. He's the author of several books, including Following the Way of Jesus, in which, with a team of leaders from the Episcopalian Church, he calls us to join the Jesus movement. He is incredibly busy and in demand all over the world. So we are enormously delighted to be able to welcome him here this evening. I hope you can see from the number of people here how delighted we are that you are here. But just in case he's in any doubt, maybe you can welcome him now. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for coming and, and for um, your warm welcome and, and please thank your daughter for me. <laughs> please thank it. It, it really is a, a privilege to, to be here. Um, uh, this cathedral um, is known not only here but, but in the states and around the world as, as a witness and, and it continues its witness even in this day to the way of Jesus and the way of God's love. And so I thank this cathedral for what you do and each one of you for coming out um, tonight. Um, it really is, um, it's, it's a joy. Um, it's always um, a joy to return to the Mother Church um, and, and to be here. And uh, I remember the night before the wedding, Archbishop Justin and I were being interviewed by um, I, I mean, I'm it, was, it was one of your broadcasters, I can't remember which one now. And, and they said, well, how is it um, that you're here referring to me? Um, and I said, well, you know, it's always good to come home to mama for dinner. <laughs> and it is, it is always good to be here with you. Um, it really, and I bring you some greetings from, from friends and brothers and sisters uh, who are the Episcopal Church. Um, in the U.S. and in many other countries as well. It's good to be here. What I thought I would do is just share some thoughts, um, just some reflections, and, and then we can really have the, the conversation and see where, where, that, conversation, where that conversation goes. Um, I, I am passionately committed to the way of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, you know, obviously I'm a bishop so that you know it's in the job description um, but but I am in particular for, um, for for a number of reasons but but one of which um, really has to do with a conviction at least in our American context and I have to be careful in our American context somehow Jesus of Nazareth has been separated from the Christian faith and I don't know if you've had any of that similar phenomenon, but it's very strange 
Now there's a sense in which Jesus the Christ in the abstract is invoked. But the teaching Jesus, the Jesus who not only taught with his words, but the Jesus who taught by his actions, how he treated people, how he interacted with them, how he interacted with the empire of the world, the teaching Jesus, his living example, and his living real presence now. Somehow that Jesus has gotten sidetracked. And I can say more about that later. But I really believe that it is time to reclaim our origins, our deepest origins, as not simply the church, but as the Jesus movement, a movement who has a church, but a church that serves him and his cause, not our cause. And that Jesus, if you look at him carefully, it's not rocket science. At the core and the center of his life, of his teachings, of why he sacrificed himself, and the power that raised him up, at the center of it all, is a way of unselfish, sacrificial love that seeks the good and the welfare of others. I love John 3.16. I mean, you're supposed to love John 3.16, of course, but I love the part, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't take, he gave. That's what love looks like. It gives, and sometimes, as Ignatius Loyola said, does not count the cost. It gives, seeking the good and the welfare of the others. And the miracle is, the self gets blessed too. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's what love looks like. That's what Jesus was about at his core. That's why God came among us in the person of Jesus. We're God's biggest headache. I've got a sermon I've never preached. The title of it, though, I have is it's a good thing I'm not God. Because, <laughs> you know, and, and you think about it, there's probably a sermon there. I haven't figured the full sermon out yet, but it, there's some truth in that God so loved the world that he didn't take from it. He gave himself. That's Jesus. That's God. And we must reclaim that Jesus again. And we will discover not only faith renewed, but we will discover power to help to transform this world from the nightmare it often is into the dream that God intends. Let, let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, I was, um, it was actually 2017. It was August. I had been in conversation with Bishop Shannon Johnson, who's the bishop, uh, who was then the Bishop of Virginia. And he had been courageously leading the church there in the work of racial reconciliation and justice. And that was a courageous thing to do for him in Virginia, and he had been involved in that. 
and he called me on a Thursday night, if I remember correctly. This was in August. And he said, a number of us and a number of Episcopal clergy and laity are joining with other ecumenical Christians and interfaith leaders. Um, we're going to Charlottesville, Virginia to be a presence in the name of love because the Nazis, neo-Nazis and neo-Ku Klux Klansmen and other white supremacist groups were coming for a gathering in Charlottesville that weekend. I spoke to him later Saturday evening after neo-Nazis marched through the streets of an American city with tiki torches in their hands, maybe you saw it on the news, shrieking Jews will not replace us, shrieking vile and hatred to anyone who was different than they are, shrieking hatred to people who are gay and lesbian, shrieking hatred to people who are politically different than they are, shrieking hatred to people who are other religions than they are, shrieking hatred at immigrants, hatred at Muslims, hatred toward Jews, hatred to every other other, marching through the streets of Charlottesville. What I only discovered later was that they were marching in protest toward the Episcopal Church right there on the campus where an interfaith service dedicated to we must find a way to love was being held. It was an apocalyptic facing off, face off between hatred and love, between two different ways of living. And then the next day on that Saturday, a Nazi drove a car through one of the crowds and killed a young woman named Heather Heyer, now one of the martyrs. Later that evening, I talked to Bishop Johnston again. And toward the end of our conversation, I said something like, look, um, I don't know right now what I can do to be supportive, but whatever it is, I will do it. Not long after that, he called back and we talked and he said, we need you to come here. Come and make a pastoral visit. There wasn't a lot of media around. Come and make a pastoral visit and just let people tell their stories. And so I did and went and spent time and just listened. Listen to, to, to Episcopalian, I mean, normal, just typical Episcopalians who I don't expect courage from normally. <laughs> and to see normal, ordinary Episcopalians, normal Anglicans suddenly having the courage of conviction to stand for the way of love, even as they trembled. I saw a community listen to stories that had been traumatized because that wasn't the only time that neo-Nazis and Klansmen had marched through the streets of Charlottesville. That had been going on for years. I listened to them tell the stories and I have to tell you, at some point I began to feel, oh, I could almost feel a pall coming down. It was as though a darkness was descending and I could feel it. The end of the day, we had a service in the church. 
and they had asked me to preach. And I remember getting up and going into the pulpit and that pall of darkness, I could feel it. And I almost didn't know what to say. And then I looked and spotted a friend of mine, Dr. Charles Marsh, who teaches theology, a professor there, who in one of his books on the civil rights movement, and this literally came to my mind, this is going on mentally in a few seconds. In this book he wrote, Jesus began the most revolutionary movement in human history. A movement of people who committed themselves to him and to his way of love and their lives were changed and in time they changed the world around them. Jesus began a movement, a movement of people who were committed to, to his way, his teachings, to, to actually living in his spirit, to allowing him somehow to become the center of their lives, not as an abstraction, but as one who said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully, the, 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 a, a Jesus, a movement committed to this Jesus who hanging from a bloodstained cross cried, Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A movement committed to the one who said, do, do unto others like you would want them to do to you. A movement of Jesus who said, feed hungry folk. Don't let hunger ravage any child of God. Clothe the naked. Visit the prisoners of Jesus who said, and when you do it to these members of my family, these other human beings, this other, you have done it unto me. Jesus began the most revolutionary movement in all of history, a movement of people who centered their lives on him, on his teachings, his example, his spirit, and his way of love until his way of love became their way of life. And some of them were even willing to die for him. Now, my sisters and brothers, that's a Jesus movement. Are y'all with me tonight? See, that's, that's the origin of Christianity. That's our origin as followers, as disciples of Jesus, a, a movement of people who dare to live the way of Jesus in their lives. And I've got to tell you, until you see the opposite, you don't realize the power of it. When I was Bishop of North Carolina, um, uh, some of you may know North Carolina is actually in the southern United States, but only in the United States could you have a southern state called North. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I was Bishop of North Carolina for 15 wonderful years, and, um, and, and, and while I was there, um, about midway through my time, uh, the diocese gave me a sabbatical leave to, to just spend three months um, doing some reading, reflection, and resting. And so while I was on this sabbatical, I did a number of things, but, but, but one of the things I really wanted to do was to spend time um, with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and Sermon on the Plain in, in Luke. 
and spend some real time with it, more in depth, and spend some time with folk who were at Duke Divinity School at the time. And so I actually got a chance to do that. Uh, what was fascinating to me was, in addition to that, I wanted to read the writings of abolitionists who were arguing both for and against the institution of slavery in the 19th century, in particular, in the United States. And I noticed something. I noticed a pattern in the writings that if you looked at those who were arguing against the institution of slavery, they regularly appealed to Jesus. They would go to Luke 4 where Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed. That's Jesus. And they knew what that Jesus meant. They would fixate. They would go to the Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. They did regularly. But those who argued for the perpetuation of the institution of chattel slavery, they avoided Jesus of Nazareth like the plague. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. I mean, the truth is, you know, if, if bigotry is your game, Jesus is not going to be helpful. <laughs> I mean, it just really is. Um, and there is no way you can link the way of love, loving your enemies, loving your neighbor as yourself, and enslaving somebody who another child of God. You just can't make it work. So they avoided those who argued to, for the perpetuation of slavery, avoided Jesus like the plague. And those who argued for its maintenance looked everywhere in Scripture, and then they distorted the rest of Scripture too. They just, poor Paul, we were talking about Paul before. Poor St. Paul gets a bad rap. I know, I know folk have issues with Paul. Now, my sister here is a, is a New Testament scholar, so I'm going to be very careful what I'm about to say. Look, Paul's all right. Paul is all right. He's all right with me. Now, you know, my grandma used to have issues with Paul, too. And grandma used to say, Paul's like every other preacher. He has some good sermons. He had some not-so-good sermons. His problem is they're all in the Bible. <laughs> but the truth is they were distorting even Paul and they distorted the Hebrew scriptures, but they completely avoided Jesus because there was no help for the institution of slavery, no help from Jesus for mistreating any child of God, no help from Jesus for corrupting or destroying the creature or the children of God. Jesus is not helpful. If bigotry is your game, don't call on that name. I wrote that line on the airplane coming here. I hope you appreciate it. I, I really worked on that one. <laughs> the truth is, and I don't think I'm really far off, where and when we as the church have gone wrong throughout history has been the further we have strayed from this Jesus of Nazareth, from his teachings, both in word and what he embodied in his life, his teachings, his example, and his living reality now. And the closer we have drawn to him and dared to follow in his way, his way of love, 
we have made a difference in the world and found our own soul. You don't believe me? Ask Francis of Assisi. You don't believe me? Ask John Newton. You don't believe me? Ask Desmond Tutu. You don't believe me? Ask old Paul. The truth is, Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus, the Christ, this Jesus actually created a movement of people who dared to follow in his way of love and his way of love became their way of life and they became instruments of God's life in the world. Oh man, this is good stuff. I'm telling you, this is good stuff. I mean, th th this is the real deal. And the truth is, as we reclaim that, we will find our lives renewed, restored, and set free. Jesus had a conversation with this, I'll sit down. A conversation with a lawyer. Are there any, any lawyers or barristers here tonight? I, I know they're here, but they're hiding. <laughs> Actually, Jesus had some really good conversations with lawyers because they, lawyers specialize in engaging the mind in, in that almost Socratic approach to questioning and raising questions and entering into dialogue. And so Jesus had a bunch of conversations with lawyers. And in this one particular one, as it's told in Matthew 22, the, you know, the lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, now, great teacher, tell me, what is the greatest law in the entire legal edifice of Moses? And Jesus says, well, he reaches back to the Hebrew scriptures and he reaches back to Leviticus and to Deuteronomy. And he pulls out from them the, the essence, the core of what Moses was getting at and what God was trying to say through Moses. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. This is the first and this is the great commandment. But don't get fooled. The second one is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, love of God and love of neighbor, hang all the law and the prophets. My brothers, my sisters, my siblings, do you know when Jesus said, on this love of God and love of neighbor like yourself hangs all the law and the prophets, Jesus was saying, if you want to know what God is about, if you want to know what religion is about, if you want to know what the Hebrew scriptures are about, if you want to know what the New Testament is about, if you want to know what the Bible is about, it is about love. Love God. Love your neighbor. And while you're at it, love yourself. That's what it's about. Yeah, love God because the God who is the Lord God Almighty condescended from the realms of eternity to call you and you and you and the little bitty baby call us into being. Love the Lord your God. Doesn't mean you got to agree with him all the time. I love my wife. <laughs> I'll leave that one right there, but yeah, right? Anybody who's married knows what I'm talking about, 
right? Love the Lord your God. And, 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 if, and it's, it's okay to, you know, have issues with God sometimes. You don't believe me? Read the Psalms. Those folk are fussing with the Lord all the time. It's all right. That's what a relationship is. You're gone. It's our love God and love your neighbor. Jesus and Moses did not say like your neighbor. Loving and liking are not the same thing. Liking is an emotional reaction. Loving is a spiritual discipline, a passionate commitment, not a sentiment but a commitment to seek the good and the welfare and the well-being, not only of yourself, but of others as well. And while you are at it, and I'm going to stop now, love yourself. Love of neighbor is predicated upon loving yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wasn't thinking you're going to dislike yourself, so dislike your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, which means you've got to love yourself. Now with this, I'm going to sit down. Because I really do think this is a revolution. I, I, um, I've taken this love, love of self seriously and, and in a funny kind of way. Because uh, it really is helpful. Because if God loves me, I might as well love me too. And so I do this every morning. I, I get up, get out of bed. And, and I go when I'm at home, go over to the little vanity and turn on the low light so I don't wake my wife up. And I kind of look in the mirror, and I have to look closely. And I keep going up to the mirror, and I look, and I say, Denzel Washington? <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> Even if it's an illusion, love yourself. <laughs> Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, and love yourself, as they say in the Episcopal Diocese of Ohio, love God, love your neighbor, and change the world. God bless you, and thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, that was okay. wonderful. Archbishop, thank you so very much. Um, I can now go home to my daughter and say, I've just heard an amazing talk. You've <laughs> got to watch it. So I'll get my own back. Get her own back. Um, can I say to um, Graham that, um, and those of you who dislike technology will love this, um, the computer has downloaded a whole load of updates and restarted, um, and therefore is not working. Um, <laughs> can you come and save me? <laughs> And uh, no one will believe that this is genuine. This means I get to ask you all my questions. Oh, okay. While Graham fixes the computer. Sure. sure. Graham is not going to want to do this, so please encourage him. <laughs> so, shall I pass it? Can you, can you come through? So, um, I think where I would like to start is with the big how. With the what? How. Oh, how. Um, you make it sound so gloriously easy. And on one level it is, isn't it? Actually. It's very, very straightforward. But on another level, um, in the grittiness of day to day, so for example, um, you may not have heard, but we have a little bit of political discord here at the moment. 
we have so much over there <laughs> that it's hard to see. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. We don't always agree with each other. <laughs> how, how do we live that love? How, I mean, how do we do it practically? Practically. Because it, it's so inspiring and I want to go, absolutely, yeah. we're going to do this. Yeah. But, but actually, how, how do we do it? Well, and, 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 and it is, it's, it's um, what is it, Jesus says, the road to perdition is easy. Um, um, we must find the narrow road, the more difficult road. And, and, and part, of, part of what I think is difficult, at least for me, I'll speak for me, um, is that as long as I relegate love to a feeling and a sentiment, and there's a form of love that, and I understand that, then it doesn't have direct consequence on my behavior and my living. But when I begin to see love as a way of life, as not merely a sentiment, but actually a commitment to a particular way of love, seeking the good in every situation, um, then that becomes something, um, on the one hand, truly natural to me and unnatural at the same time. And it is. Because if, I mean, I. It's taken me a while to get this, but I'm really beginning to see that the opposite of love is not actually hate. The opposite of love is self-centeredness. That's really the opposite of love. Love seeks the good and the well-being and the welfare of others as well as the self, but others as well. And that's, that's the opposite of self-centeredness. Um, you know, I could go on into sin and self-centeredness and all that kind of stuff, but that's the opposite. And so part of the struggle is that the way of love runs counter to my selfish instincts um, uh, very often. Um, and, and, and so that makes it difficult. It makes it easier for me to think, I'm just going to be selfish. And I'm just going to look out for number one. And I'm just going to take care of Michael Curry. And I'm just going to take care of everybody who has my religion or everybody who has my race or everybody who has my country. Or, I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the nationalism, authentic nationalisms that become nativisms, um, um, the, the genuine healthy self-respect that becomes selfishness, that, that's the trajectory that you're wrestling with love. Love is the counter to that. So how do you counter that? Um, in, in 1963, during the civil rights, uh, uh, almost the height of the civil rights struggle in the American South, um, uh, Dr. King and the leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference made a decision to engage a campaign in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, Birmingham, Alabama then, it's not now, it's a, it's a pretty progressive city now, but, but, but Birmingham, Alabama then. I'd just like to say, we've got a Birmingham here that's quite good too. Is it good too? Which is where I live, so. Just oh, you live in Birmingham. Yeah. Oh, there we go, I got family in Birmingham, but I think it's the other one. <laughs> but yeah, Birmingham was, um, it was an intractable um, place. The, the head of the uh, law enforcement was a sheriff named Bull, B-U-L-L, Bull Connor. That, when that's the name of the sheriff, that's definitely intimidation. Um, and the civil rights workers in the time used to refer to Birmingham as Bombingham. It was, there were so many Klan murders and Klan, terror, what we would call terrorist attacks um, by the Ku Klux Klan in, in and around Birmingham. It was, it was, it was terrible. Anyway, it was Birmingham where at the 16th Street Baptist Church where uh, a bomb was exploded. Um, on a Sunday morning and four little girls who, who would be my age, I'm 66 now, they would be 65, 66 if they had lived now. Four of the kids were killed, 20 some odd people were, were seriously injured in that bomb blast. Um, that was Birmingham. Um, but they knew that, that sometimes you've got to go into the belly of the beast in order to transform. 
And so they made a decision that they were going to mount a serious campaign to desegregate Birmingham. As part of that, the nonviolent protesters who were involved in that received training in nonviolent methods and, and, um, and approaches. They really received intensive training in the way of nonviolence, how to make a protest and not retaliate, and on and on and on. Dr. King, in preparing them, prepared um, what they jokingly referred to as his Ten Commandments. And what they were were spiritual and moral principles for the nonviolent protester. Um, they had things like the, the goal of the nonviolent movement is not victory over another. The goal is the realization of justice that can lead to true reconciliation of the races. The work of the nonviolent resistor is the work of love. Because God is love, we must love. The nonviolent resistor treats every person, friend or foe alike, with the ordinary roles of human courtesy and dignity. And it went on like that. It talked about love, gave all the about love being worked out. But the first one, the first one, he said, before you march, before you protest, before you open your mouth, before you march, meditate on the life and the teachings of Jesus. The wisdom of that was that he was inviting them to spend time with Jesus in study, meditation, and prayer so that the way his way of love his spirit would begin to seep into theirs to help them do what they couldn't completely do on their own. And so I would suggest that the response, the deep response to your question is that we have to find ways to go spiritually deeper in a relationship with God in Christ. And, and we don't have to invent ways of doing that, actually. There are ways that have been tested in the fires of hard living. Ways of prayer, ways of meditation and listening to scripture, ways of being in community and living hospitality, ways of worshiping God, which I'm beginning to realize, you know what, I think I know what worship's about now. It's taken me 66 years to figure this out. And I may be wrong anyway, but that's okay. I think worship is about getting, overcoming myself and reaching out to God. It is an ultimate act of love to love God enough to get over Michael Curry and to let God be God. And then the miracle is I get Michael Curry back. And so I really do think spiritual practices really are a key to, to, to helping us live a life that we can't do on our, completely on our own. We can do partially, but can't do completely. Because if you hit me, I'm going to want to hit you back. You know, that's my first instinct. <laughs> I wouldn't then. But, oh, thank you. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something for the two of us to be tussling up here? But anyway. <laughs> and so how do you counter that? You need, actually, it was William Temple. Since I'm here in England, I might as well quote William Temple. Um, but it was William Temple who was talking about the Holy Spirit. And I, I can't remember where he said it, but he was talking about the Holy Spirit. 
And he said, there's no use um, asking me to live a life like Jesus solely on my own. But if the spirit that made Jesus Jesus could somehow inhabit me, then a life that resembles him might become possible. No need in asking me to write composed King Lear. Shakespeare could do that. I can't. But if the spirit of the bard could inhabit my spirit, then King Lear could just come off my finger. And he, and he went on and on like that. That's what King realized, that to love like Jesus needs the help of the spirit and the re living reality of Jesus. And the ways, the spiritual practices of prayer and meditation and community and worship and, and rest and Sabbath rest, all of those um, go into making that so. On the website of the Episcopal Church, um, we've got a section, and it's free. I mean, it's not, this isn't a commercial. I'm not making any money or anything. But it's, it's um, called The Way of Love. And it's, it's, we've been inviting people in the Episcopal Church um, to really look at, can I adopt a rule of life that helps me grow into a deeper relationship um, with Jesus Christ? And, and, and we've been able to curate a number of resources. The monastic communities have helped us out. People who are involved in the work of formation and education have helped. It didn't cost the church anything. It was actually, well, it cost them a little bit, but I told them it was free. Um, but it, <laughs> it was mostly free. Um, but the idea is if we can as Archbishop Tutu says, if we can be in partnership with God by ourselves, we can't. By himself, God won't. But together with God, we can. Become partners with God. And then maybe it's possible to love even our enemies. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And now the questions have started flooding in. Oh, so let's, okay. let's start with some of them. Um, here's one to get us going. Okay. Um, if we could ask Jesus how the Jesus movement is going after 2,000 years, <laughs> what do you think he would say? He'd probably say, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to admit, I really don't know, but I, but I suspect that I know... Um, there are deeply faithful people. I've seen them, I see them all the time. Um, there are deeply faithful people who really are seeking to follow in the way of Jesus. Um, and I've seen them do remarkable, I saw them in Charlottesville. Yes. What got the news was the shrieks of hatred because that's louder. But I saw the people who stood quietly for love and while that literally, while the Nazis were shrieking, Jews will not replace us, they were, the, the, the other folk were singing this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Um, I mean, so I, I, there are faithful people, many of whom are quiet, um, who are actually there. They're in our churches, and a lot of them aren't in our churches. They're around us who really are interested in this Jesus and his way. I have a feeling Jesus would look, look for them and say, ah, there's some of my folk. And then I got a funny feeling Jesus would look around the world and say, you know, um, you know, there's probably more good than there's bad. It's just that the bad is louder. It's louder. And you know what? We just need to help the good <laughs> to, to rise up. And 
that hymn says, claim the high calling angels cannot share. So I, I think Jesus, you know, now, now, I, I, now well, I'll stay out of politics and I can talk about the United States from here. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all right. No one will see. It, it'll be okay? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Jesus would, would look at us and say, um, he would say to my country, um, you know, and I love my country, but he, he would say, America, you can be better than this. America, you can be better than this. So, so I want you to be better, and I'm going to invite you to be better. And, and this is a nonpartisan be better, <laughs> but you can be better than this. And I think he would say to the, to the leaders of the nations, leaders of the nation, you can do better than this. God has given you great gifts and capacities, and you need not decimate your planet. You can make the earth clean. You can stave off this climate change, but you have to make up the decision. I'm not going to do it for you. But you, I mean, I sound like, remember George Burns when he played the part of God talking about, I mean, but I got a feeling Jesus would be getting in that kind of, I mean, he would be getting in the nitty gritty and he would say, come here, come here, y'all can do better. Come here, come here, come here. You know, you need to love that. You need to forgive her. You need to forgive him. Oh, you need to do what's just. You're a judge. America, Britain, do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God and find your life. Now, if I'm wrong, I'll answer for it later, but right now I think it's pretty good. <laughs> I would say it's a pretty good answer. And we're okay, yeah. <laughs> There's a number of questions um, which are all kind of in a similar kind of area, which is how do you stay so positive in such a messy world, in such a negative world? So the, what, what we felt this evening and what we saw in the sermon at the, at the royal wedding was this overwhelming positive um, view of God, of love, of the world in which we live. Um, how, how do you keep that way? I, I don't know that I know. The, I mean, I'm sure some of that's personality. Some, I mean, I'm, I'm sure of that. But one of the things I've learned, one of my favorite pictures of Dr. Martin Luther King is one that you don't see very often. And it's with him and Harry Belafonte. And they are laughing about something. I mean, to the, King is actually be, I mean, bent over. And ben, Belafonte is like this. I mean, they, I don't know what they were laughing about. But they were in the midst of some of the horrors of the Civil Rights Movement. And they laughed. They found a way to laugh. Somehow we need to come together to find ways, to find moments of joy, even in the midst of horror. Um, and sometimes that's, that's hard. I mean, I, I don't know, I, I can't program how you do that, but, but I know that there's something about, and it can't happen just by yourself, that somehow when we're together, if we'll let loose a little bit, if we'll just relax a little bit, um, you know, you can sometimes laugh at the absurdity of some of the stuff we do and take it, take ourselves not so seriously. It's, you know, life's too short. So why not enjoy whatever moment you can and do all the good you can? And I, I just, I guess to be honest, some of it's, I'm stubborn. I refuse to believe, I refuse to believe that the world must remain the way it is. We can be better than this. We can. We can. Yeah? 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Holy stubbornness. Holy stubbornness, yes. It's a good I thing. like it. It's a good thing. <laughs> um, one of the questions um, is around bigotry and Christianity, so I shall read it to you. You said, if bigotry is your game, then Jesus is not for you. Yet so much of our divisive politics is justified by an interpretation of Christianity. How would you go about challenging that bigotry? I think you've started talking about that in what you've said already. Would you like to unpack that yeah. a little bit more? Yeah, I, and again, I can't speak to your context. That would be presumptuous of me. I wouldn't, can't do that. I can speak to my context in the States. Um, um, I have lovingly um, um, engaged and with others, um, um, other Christian leaders um, who have not been willing to show the compassion that we know is of Christ toward immigrants, refugees, people seeking shelter in America. And, and we've said, look, this is not about whether you're a conservative, liberal, Republican, or Democrat in our context. This is not about your political stripe. Look, I, I love my country, but I love the Lord more than I love my country. And I'm able to truly love my country because I love my Lord. Yeah. And so um, I, I, he, my Lord teaches me that love is the way of life. And, and so for Christian leaders in America, and I'm just speaking about America, um, if you say you are a Christian leader, <laughs> that you are a Christian, then my thing is, let's go to the book. Let's, what does Jesus say? And let's take that seriously. And then how do we live out that spirit in our lives, both personally and socially and globally? How do we live that out? And so that is a challenge. What I have found consistently, um, to be very honest, um, many, not all, but many extreme right-wing evangelical leaders will talk about Jesus and Christ in the abstract, but will not get specific. In other words, it's incarnational. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's an abstract Jesus, and we can create an abstract Jesus in our own image and likeness. And I'm just saying very simply, you know, I'm a, I'm a simple man. I'm saying very simply, what did Jesus say in the New Testament? What does he say in the Gospels? He talks about love over and over again. He talks about seeking the good and welfare of people over and over again. Jesus has table fellowship with people, other people cast out and rejected. Jesus engages with women when women's roles were not to be engaged with in the way that he did. This Jesus forgives the, the thief who repents on the cross. This Jesus forgives even Pontius Pilate and Judas Iscariot from the cross. That's Jesus. In Matthew 25, he says, you know, when you did it to the least of these, you've done it to me. When you do, when you care for the strangers, the immigrant, the refugee, the way you've treated them is how you've treated me. And so I say to my Christian brothers and sisters, I mean, just, I'm just dealing with Christians right now. If you want to be Christian, and if you say it's Christian, it's got to look like Jesus. And if it doesn't show his love, well, God's the judge. Who am I to judge? All I know is if I got to make mistakes, I want to make a mistake by being a person of love. 
this is an interesting question. You've used the word Christian as we were just talking now regularly. Um, what do you think about the word Christian? Um, it comes with a whole load of baggage these days. Should we dump it, choose a different one? And if we did, what would we choose instead? I don't know what we would choose instead, but I, I, well, and it probably depends on the context too. Um, I mean, I tend, when I'm asked, I tend to say I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that tends to be, now if I'm filling out a paper and they ask, then I have to say Christian or something like that. Um, but I have to tell you, when, just some years ago when I was Bishop of North Carolina, um, and my staff, the communication staff said, we really need you to, you know, you keep saying, you, you know, you're an evangelist and you want to reach people and all this stuff. Say, well, social media is a way to do it. This is 15 years ago or so. And so I said, okay, so what do you want me to do? They said, well, we need to get you on Facebook and Twitter. And I said, oh, man, I just have one more thing to do. Anyway, so they, they hogtied me and, and, and got me to do it. And I remember when I was filling out the little things on Facebook, and, you know, you put your name, and you can, you know, it's, it's self-revelation, so you can reveal as much as you want or not. And so, you know, they have these little questions, and you answer your name, um, where do you live, I guess, or your birth date, that kind of stuff. Um, are you male? Are you female? Are you single, married? Um, or, or I love when people answered, answer single or married, and they just put, it's complicated. Um, it's, and so I'm answering all these little questions, and I got to one that was like either religious affiliation or religious preference. And I almost did write Christian, and I hesitated. And the reason I hesitated is not that I'm not a Christian. I am. But I know that that word has been distorted, and it has very often been twisted to mean things that I don't believe. I believe being Christian is about following the way of Jesus. That's what, I mean, and I know that that word has got a lot of baggage tied to it. So I think if I remember correctly, I just put Episcopalian slash Christian. I knew nobody <laughs> would know what that meant anyway. So I figured that was safe. But I do think the word Christian has attained some baggage. I mean, in, in the States, the Pew Research, when they interviewed um, young adults um, who were not affiliated with a religious community, uh, which is the majority, but who are not affiliated and ask them um, kind of uh, like a word association, what do you hear or think of when you hear the word Christian? They identified consistently by overwhelming majorities, homophobic, narrow-minded, and bigoted. Yeah, depressing, that, isn't it? Now, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That's not Jesus. And so um, I think we've got to reclaim Jesus and let him help us redeem our name. There's a spiritual that was sung by slaves in the United States um, whose name, who lost their names in, in the slave trade. Part of, part of the dehumanization process was that, you know, you lost your name and you took the, you know, the slave master's name. And, I mean, my last name is Curry. Um, and, I, you know, I, I mean, I know that's got some Scottish and Irish um, connections. And actually, I've often said I'm going to come to Ireland and, Meet the family. But anyway, that's, <laughs> but, but that was all part of the process. Um, but the old slaves used to sing a song. I told Jesus, he said, be, it'll be all right. And he changed my name. It may be that reclaiming Jesus of Nazareth, he'll help us reclaim the name Christian. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've got a hard question and then a slightly funnier question coming up now. So just in case okay. you're thinking, I hope they're not all like this. Um, how, do you, how do justice and forgiveness coexist? 
is the question. And it's, it's a striking question, I think, because um, we want to talk very much about justice. Um, and yet, one of the most common things Jesus says in the Gospels is, your sins are forgiven. How do you put those two together? There's a psalm in the psalm, I can't remember which number it is, but it says, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That, that part of the greatness of God is not so much about God's power, it is the capacity of God to bridge what are normally divides and chasms in God's very self. To be a God of, of justice and yet a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness. Remember Moses had some issues with that. Um, um, actually, that's a pretty good story. And uh, I think it's in the, toward the end of Exodus, Moses kind of gets upset. He said, well, actually, Abraham had the same issues yeah. with God. He said, And Don't. Jonah wasn't keen either. Oh, Jonah didn't. Like, oh, no, Jonah had a really bit. You know, there are people who had issues with God. He said, I knew you were going to forgive those yeah. Ninevites. I knew it, doggone it. Um, but <laughs> so how do you, how do you, when I was um, a parish priest in, in the city of Baltimore, this was in um, uh, the late 80s um, through to, uh, until 2000 when I was elected bishop. Um, uh, a friend of mine, John Kitagawa, um, who's an Asian, a Japanese-American, um, whose family had been Episcopalian for generations, um, um, whose family um, had been interred in a concentration camp during the Second World War, after Pearl Harbor, when the United States of America took Japanese Americans and took them from their homes and sent them to prison camps where they had to live for the duration of the war. Um, I went and visited um, the church where his dad had been, St. Phillips in Seattle, Washington. That's a painful story. That's a painful story. Anyway, John was a friend. We had been in college together, and he was the... Um, um, it would be the archdeacon here um, um, on the bishop's staff, and I was parish priest. And so every year at St. James, which was um, an African-American, predominantly African-American congregation, um, with a long, old history, um, actually going back, predating slavery, going back to slavery, um, at one time it had been a congregation that was composed of, um, of, 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 as the charter says, Africans both bond and free. Fascinating and they didn't always get along. There were some issues, but it was, you know, human beings are human beings. Um, but anyway, this it kind of this old kind of um, a wonderful, wonderfully historic, and yet a lively place, but now in the center city of Baltimore, um, um, trying to be a witness right in the middle, in the heart of the city. Anyway, every year on January 1st, the Sunday near January 1st, which usually turned out to be the Feast of the Baptism of Jesus, but on that Sunday, um, we observed Emancipation Day um, because in 1863, I believe, 1863, on January 1st, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation during the Civil War. The war was still going on. It technically wasn't a legal document, but it was a moral statement. Um, and it was a recognition on Lincoln's part that the Civil War in the United States was not about preserving the Union. It was about the abomination of slavery. And Lincoln finally came to realize that. And so the Emancipation Proclamation declared that all who are held as, as bondsmen um, within these United States shall now henceforth and forevermore be free. 
well, we, you know, that was part of that part of the emancipation was read during the service, and then the choirs would sing. You know, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Glory, glory. I mean, it was really a, it was great stuff. It was great stuff. And so, but this one year, um, and I usually got somebody to come in and preach. This one year, I got John Kitagawa to come, and I said, John, just tell your story. Emancipation's about everybody. And in his sermon, he had just read Miroslav Volf's um, book back then. I can't remember the title of it, but it was about it was about reconciliation and justice, about this tension. And John talked about his family being interred. He said, justice must be done. And we must labor for justice because justice is about setting things right for everybody. Justice is not about revenge. It's about helping to rightly order society and the world. He said, but justice is not enough. The goal must ultimately be reconciliation. Somehow we must learn to do justice, to work, to set things right, to right wrongs, but to right wrongs with the right spirit that can lead to a better world, a reconciled world for us all. And as hard as it may be, that's the way of Jesus. That's what Paul said, mm -hmm. 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who in Christ was reconciling the world to himself and who has now given to us the ministry of reconciliation. It's hard, but nothing worth doing is easy. Thank you. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> people like that. Oh, oh, thank you. Now for something a little lighter, then okay. we'll go on to other things. And I would like to stress, I am reading a question here. Uh -huh. You may not like it. As an older person, are they speaking for themselves? Or? No, no, you. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's just, I'm just warning you. As an older person. So as an older person, do you have a bucket list? A and bucket list? Yes. And if you do, what's at the top? What's at the top of my bucket list? What's left? Well, I, I mean, I have to, well, I do have it. Um, and um, uh, I don't know if you know about American football, but um, which is not like football everywhere else in the world, but American football. I grew up in the city of Buffalo. And the football team in Buffalo is the Buffalo Bills. And they are, they are, no, they are remarkably consistent um, in defeat. Um, <laughs> um, they're they're kind of winning this year a little bit, but, but we've been through this before. Yeah. And so on my bucket list will be for the Buffalo Bills to go to the Super Bowl and actually win. They, they've been there before. Yeah. Actually, they went there several times and um, lost each time. And I had a parishioner who actually called me um, after the game and said, well, Father, um, how about those bills? I said, look, yeah, why would you do this? This is not Christian of you. This is very, this is not Christian of you. And he said, I thought of something. I said, what's that? He said, the word bills is not a name. It's an acronym. It stands for boy, I love losing Super Bowls. <laughs> <laughs> so the bills in the Super Bowl winning, that would be on my bucket list. <laughs> Which means I'm going to have a long life. 
that's a neat question. Okay, so I've given you a nice light one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are you ready? Yep. Um, so this is the question. What do you think Jesus would say to congregations who show not love but exclusion to LGBTQ people who desire to marry in the Anglican Church? Who did what? Desire to marry in the Anglican Church. So I hope you enjoyed your bucket list question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah what else is on my bucket list? Yes, we get... yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I've and 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 um, the, I mean, the Episcopal Church in in the United States and um, it's actually in 16, 17 different countries, but but the Episcopal Church, U.S.-based Episcopal Church, um, has struggled um, since the mid '70s on 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 what does it mean to be um, a church whose national cathedral quotes Jesus quoting the prophets, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And we've struggled with that. I mean, it's not been a quick journey. It's been, we've, we've struggled. And we're still working at it. We're a work in pro process. We're not finished. Um, but, but one of the realizations that many of us have come or came to um, was that one, um, that in our baptism that in our baptism, as St. Paul says in Galatians, all who have put, who have been, who have put on Christ in baptism, um, he, he then says, those who have put on Christ, there is Christ, are one in Christ. And there is, therefore, no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, for all are one in Christ. We sing that hymn, in Christ there is no east nor west, in him no south nor north. I've come to believe that in baptism, God adopts us as God's children, all of us, equally. And, and it doesn't matter if you're conservative, and I'm a liberal. I've said this to members of Congress. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you sit on. If you are a baptized child of God into Jesus Christ, then you are God's child. It doesn't matter who you are. You are God's. And if God has decreed that you are his own, who am I to challenge what God has decreed? And so, oh, okay. See, this is how we Brits express our enthusiasm, just so you know. Oh, that okay, was I get it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and so, and, and so that means that what we have done in the Episcopal Church um, is, is to try to live in a way where all of the baptized are equal before God, as we all are. Actually, all human beings are, but, but all the baptized in the church and equal in the church in every respect. And, and so we've tried to live that out, but we've had to also do it in a way, and this is where we're still growing, in a way that honors the full inclusion of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender um, um, folk, and at the same time honors those who disagree and have a different understanding, and that somehow we can live together and I really believe that if we can learn to live together in the Christian community, I see, I think it is possible, this is another sermon I haven't preached. Um, the title of this one would be, Jesus is Lord, and guess what? You're not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
And <laughs> that if Jesus is Lord, then we don't have to pretend to be. And, and if we don't have to pretend to be, we can disagree. But the cardinal law of God is love. And if we can work at loving each other, even in our disagreements, then maybe we in the church can offer a witness to how the world can live together and love even in disagreements. And so I speak only from the context of, of my church, but I hope that's helpful for anybody else. One of the things that's very distressing for us in Britain at the moment is seeing the number of young people and particularly young black boys who are being stabbed. Um, st stabbed, stabbed. Stabbed. So, so stabbed? stabbed. So uh, with knife crime. Oh, oh okay. Sorry, okay. English right. accent. Right. Yes. Um, and we see it daily, weekly um, on our streets, particularly in London. Um, and the question here is, um, if it's so easy to love yourself, why are, so, are young black boys stabbing and killing each other? And it's a, it's a very powerful question for many of us who, who grieve the number of um, knife crime that it, there is, is. around. Um, most of the years that, that I was a parish priest, um, from about 1978 until 2002, until I um, was like, became bishop, um, most of my ministry has been in um, either urban or rural black communities. Um, and when I was in Baltimore in particular, um, this, was a, this was late 80s and then through the 90s when crack cocaine had just had hit the streets in about mid 80s. I'm not sure when it would have hit here, but it probably was about the same time. And we saw an escalation of violence. The drug trade had been there for a while, that wasn't it. But there was an escalation. Um, when um, crack cocaine made drugs cheap and accessible. And the drug trade, it, it just spiraled. And there were cartels. I mean, it, it just became a nightmare. And drive-by um, shootings were a regular, it was just a regular. And I, I found myself as a parish priest burying young men. I mean, burying young men um, who had been killed in these, these wars. Um, one of the things we, it was a calling, a new calling to me. Um, I, I remember a funeral, one, one of the earlier funerals in particular, um, a young man who had actually been an acolyte in St. James Church at one time, uh, had gotten involved in the drug world. His family were very faithful folk. Um, and, and he was killed. Um, um, and I remember it was at his funeral that, um, a lot of his friends and associates um, were at the funeral. And, and it was really, it was a realization. I said, none of the, and I knew, and they didn't know how to function in a church. I mean, there's a kind of etiquette, just how you, you know what I mean? There's just the, if somebody's grown up in church, you kind of know you what stand? you kind of do, you and you figure it out, right. But it was clear, they didn't know. I mean, and they weren't hostile. Um, there were some tough-looking guys in there, but they weren't, weren't hostile. Anyway, long and short of it was when we finished the service, and I basically walked them all through the service, um, and I preached a very different sermon. I did an altar call in that church um, and talked about Jesus Christ 
and and this Jesus can make a difference in your life and has made a difference in my life. I mean, it was a very different, um, I, I, anyway, it, it was very different. Um, and, and actually one person actually did kind of become part of that community after that, and I think about it. But when we went to the cemetery, um, some of his friends were pallbearers. I mean, they were acting as pallbearers and they didn't really know how to do it, but the undertakers and, you know, it helped them. And when, you know, we finished the service, we did the, you know, the commendation, the committal and everything at the burial. And when it was finished, usually the tradition was once you're finished, um, you know, then I nod to the funeral director and the funeral director says, um, you know, something about um, uh, there'll be a repast back at the church for the family and friends. And uh, we thank you for coming and um, you may make acknowledgments to the family. Da -da 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 -da. So he did funeral. I did my thing. Funeral director did his thing. And the pallbearers stayed by the casket. They didn't move. And I was trying to figure out what is going on. I didn't know what was going on. And they um, were looking at facing the casket. And one of them, these are all young black men, 19 to early 20s, I would guess. He put his hand on the casket. And he said, Dwayne, we'll see you real soon. That was a wake-up call to me because for a young man, 19 years old, to see no future, then death, if that's it, then why not do drugs? Yeah. Why not? If that's all there is. And I realized that if we don't help young people to have a vision of life that is greater than self, I used to tell kids, you may be living in a ghetto, but if you've got a God, your God is bigger than this ghetto. And, and, and helping young people to find that vision of life that I believe this Christian vision can help us have. And then helping them have practical tools to be in school and to learn and to be that, that learning and becoming something that you can do it. You do not have to submit to this world. You can do it. Um, helping them, that's what church communities can do. You know, you, you, we couldn't do it all. We didn't, weren't successful every, but there are some kids who are out there leading productive lives um, today because that church rallied and created programs and really began intervening in the lives of children. I believe that part of what we as the Christian church and, and faith communities all over need to do is reclaim our young people, reclaim our children, help them find another way. But we've got to go where they are and we've got to intensively work with them and provide the kind of context where they can grow into something that God wants them to be. Um, no child should be thrown away, but it takes that kind of intensive work by a whole society, by church and religious communities, and a passionate commitment. Doggone it, we are going to save our children because as we save the children, they may well save us. They may well save us. So, allied, but slightly different to that. You're good at this. this is good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, one question says, in my parish, I meet so many atheist and agnostic people for whom the, the idea of going to church is absurd on a good day. And believing in God is too silly, risky, irrational to imagine. What can we do to include them 
and welcome them. Invite them into the conversation, not the debate. <laughs> yes, yes. Invite folk, and actually, actually invite folk into a conversation with Jesus. I, I mean, I'm, I'm beginning to realize, actually, Jesus, believe it or not, is actually pretty helpful. Um, <laughs> people aren't as mad at him. Yeah. They're mad with the church. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, Jesus has some street cred. <laughs> And, and so inviting folk, you know, why don't you spend a little time, let's study, let's read together. Let, let's, re let's read Mark. Let's read one of the Gospels. Let's, let's actually read, read or Luke, whatever, it doesn't matter, any of the, I mean, we got four Gospels, take your pick. But let, let's read together. Why not? All right, you don't believe? Um, why don't I pray for you and what it, you do, whatever it is you do, Think thoughts, good thoughts for me. We can just do, I mean, take folk where they are. You don't have to twist their arms or anything, but take them where they are, but invite them to go further and figure out a way to invite somebody to go further. Um, what, what I am aware of, and I, and I, and I know that, that the Church of England here has been, actually, you're way ahead of us in the States in this respect of really realizing that, um, as a friend of mine said, um, in a time like this, the church can no longer wait for its congregation to come to it. The church must go where the congregation is. And a lot of the congregation is beyond these doors. And we have got to go out and be where folk are. Um, one of the best things I ever did was, I mean, I didn't do it, but I mean, I, I, they got me to do it, rather, um, was when I was Bishop of North Carolina in campus ministries and would visit the ministries, they would just like stick me in a student center. It's just, just me with a little sign um, <laughs> all day long and they'd like leave me there. <laughs> and it was like, oh God, is anybody gonna come and talk to me or anything? Actually, it turned out to be, I mean, there were people came around. They said, you gotta go in the middle of the crossways. Um, where, where folks and students are and spend time with them, listen to them and share with them. And, you know, I have to admit, over the years I have had more, I've had, young people don't come up and ask me about um, the latest hip hop or whatever they are. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, they don't, they don't look for my expertise, <laughs> but I have had incredible conversations about Jesus, yeah. incredible ones, not usually about the church, you get there later. Not usually about the church. I love the church, but, but I know the church too. <laughs> but about Jesus of Nazareth? I, we don't realize that Jesus is not old news to a lot of folk. Outside of Christmas, the Christmas Jesus. I mean, everybody knows, I don't know, but here, everybody knows the Christmas Jesus, that part. But what did the brother actually teach? What did this dude actually stand for? Why did his way of love get him killed? I mean, you know, when you say, let's talk about that. Let's, let's listen to what's going on here. Oh, I think this Jesus is more intriguing than we Christians who have been, than we actually think. There's more. I'm, Jesus ain't dead. <laughs> He's still in business. <laughs> so invite him in. <laughs> and you know, one of the things I'm finding is, Jesus' stories in particular are fabulous. And the only reason why we think they aren't is we're so bored of them, we're used to them. Right, right. Um, there's nothing so fun as telling them to people who've never heard them before. because yeah, it's new. Yeah. It's not just good news, it's actually new news. Yeah. <laughs> it's just good, yeah, you're right. 
She's a New Testament professor. Did I get an A on that one? Okay. Absolutely. A star, <laughs> okay, definitely. A star, okay. <laughs> Um, so I'm conscious that this is, um, this, this is genuinely a question that someone has asked, but from me it's going to sound like it has an edge. Okay. Um, how good do you think Paul was at carrying on Jesus' message? <laughs> Actually... I'm marking. I know. I, <laughs> geez, I'm sitting next to a Pauline scholar now. I'm <laughs> Actually, I think he was remarkably good at it. Now... Right Paul was a human being. He was like the rest of us. I mean, he was, but um, in one respect, had it not been for Paul, I don't know that the Jesus movement would have continued and expanded into the, the Christian movement that it became. I really do. I think it would have been dead in its tracks eventually. Um, and some of that goes back, if you remember back in the Acts of the Apostles, um, where um, you know Paul begins to emerge on the scene, and you've kind of got the Jerusalem church, which is composed mostly of folk who had been around Jesus, they, they, you know, while he was on earth and all of that. And so they kind of were holding fast to that tradition, and they actually had, um, you know, they're under, they, I mean, everybody was Jewish at that point. And so they assumed that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you would have to become Jewish first, and then you become a follower of Jesus. You know, you'd follow his teachings, which is kind of, that was their experience. And so they assumed that that was a universal experience. Well, in fact, it wasn't, but they assumed that. Um, Peter got some indications that maybe there's a direct way for the people who are not Jewish, who are Gentiles, but he didn't really follow up on it until Paul pushed him. And um, you think we have church fights now? Oh, Peter and Paul had some serious um, entanglements. Uh, excuse me, church councils where they took counsel with one another. Um, <laughs> uh, they really, they really did. Um, and but there was a point at which Paul, you know, once he kind of got into the Christian thing, and and got into the again, it was Jesus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me on that Damascus road? It was that Jesus again that that moved him in a new way. It was Paul who began. To, it was almost as though. This is me talking. It is almost as though Paul realized if this Jesus could move my life and deepen it and enrich it in this way. And he, I had a direct experience of him. It was in a vision, but I had a direct experience. It, maybe it is by this direct experience of this Jesus and his way of love that anybody can have this. And so Paul said, wait a minute. You, you don't have to, you know, become Jewish first to become a follower of Jesus, you can go right to Jesus. There was a whole reformation about that, actually. Um, but you go right to Jesus. Now, this ran against the tradition of the Jerusalem church who said, wait a minute, no, 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 you, you got to become Jewish first, and then you become a follower of Jesus. You know, that was good if that's who you are, but was that necessary if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew? Now, again, this was not a complicated issue. I mean, all right, I'm I'm going to say it this way. If you were a woman, this was not a major problem. Stay with me. Let me be careful. But let me say, um, because basically you, you took, I mean, it was like, kind of like confirmation class. Um, you know, you, you kind of studied and, and you learned about the tradition of Israel and you learned everything you needed to learn. And, and, and eventually, you know, I don't remember, there was more details to it, but it wasn't a painful experience. <laughs> if you were a male Gentile, otherwise known as the uncircumcised, becoming Jewish um, meant that you had to get circumcised as an adult. 
Now, I don't know about the church here in England, but we'd have a hard time getting, we got a hard time now getting men in church. <laughs> uh, are y'all are with me now? Now you see where I'm going. And uh, it's a good thing Paul won that debate. Can I get an amen out of somebody? Get <laughs> an amen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Paul won that debate and realized that it's by faith in Jesus Christ that, that's, that the circumcision that's going on is the circumcision of the heart. It's the circumcision of that flab that separates us from the love, that, that sin or whatever it is that holds us down. That's what's going on. It's not about a literal physical circumcision. And, and Paul, if Paul hadn't won that debate, I don't think Christianity would have spread. I really don't. And I have to admit, and I know Billy Graham was here in, in Great Britain in the 50s and yeah. early 60s, and he used to always have his crusades. I remember when I was a little kid, my grandma would watch Billy Graham, and I would sit down with grandma. And he was always going to um, Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada. I remember every year he would go there. And I remember at one time I said to Grandma, why is Dr. Graham always going to um, Winnipeg um, in Canada? Is there a lot of sin up there or something? And she never did answer me because really he should have gone to New York if that's where you really want to find it. But, um, but I mean, imagine, I mean, I mean, do you all remember how the Billy Graham, how the Crusades used to go? Remember, everybody would be singing, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come choir would keep singing that and they would be humming it and singing it and Dr. Graham would call folk down he would say close the doors hold the buses if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior come down today today is the first day of the rest I mean it really was I mean you know he was really was good and you could call people down and well imagine if Paul had lost the debate with Peter <laughs> come down and get circumcised <laughs> <laughs> so the answer is Paul kept the Jesus movement going so that it actually would spread. I really do think that's the case. <laughs> We're coming close to the end of the evening. Oh, okay. And um, it's been absolutely wonderful. But I, I've got one last question that I'd like to ask you before we end. You have really been telling us the answer to this question all evening, but I thought you might like the opportunity to sum up for us. What does Jesus mean to you? Oh. You know, I... Um, the. The longer I live and the more honest I am with myself, trying and striving to follow Jesus in his way consistently pulls me out of myself. I sometimes resist that. But there's something about him saying, come, follow me, and I'll make you more than you ever thought you could be. That's real. And I am a sinner like everybody else. I am as self-centered and 
selfish as anybody I am. I mean, we're all, you know, I'm in good company. It's, it's good to be with everybody else who's the same way. You know, <laughs> it's kind of nice. But I know that there's something better about a Michael because of being determined to follow this Jesus, even when I fail, to just get up and, like Paul says, to press on toward the mark. And he makes me a better me. And that's why I call him my Lord, my Savior, and my friend. But he's my Lord, too. And he's ours. Thank you. Very sadly, we have come to eight o'clock. I don't know about you, but I could have sat here for at least another hour listening to Archbishop Michael. I'm sure you couldn't have, but we would have yeah, loved well, it. I could, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, so it remains for me to say um, a huge thank you to those of you who asked questions. They were outstandingly really good are. questions. Yeah. Um, and the conversation was richer as a result. Yes. I would like to remind you that should you care to buy one of Archbishop Michael's books, um, the bookstall is down there and people are ready and willing to take your money for them. Um, but most importantly of all, let us end by saying an enormous thank you oh. for your inspiration, for yourself, for your love of Jesus. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you all. Thank you. God love you. God bless. We sadly need to... Thank you. God bless you. <laughs>